Good afternoon. You're here with the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here today. Um, this is a pre-taped show, so uh, Jason Breedle is here with us in the studio, and uh, we're talking on a Sunday, the day after the Ann Arbor Book Festival, um, and you'll be hearing this on on Wednesday. Um, but every listener is welcome to the show. And Jason Breedle, thank you for coming and speaking today with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, we're talking about how we should probably have like some sort of webcam in here eventually so everyone can also see what's happening. So yeah. we can have pictures of emus if we want. Glad it's not here now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Next time you're here. Um, so so Jason Breedle is, is visiting. He currently um, lives in Chicago. He's uh, a poet that has come through the MFA program here at Michigan. And he was back to sign his book, um, at the book fair yesterday, Standing in Line for the Beast. Um, and so what we're going to do to start off is Jason is going to kick off with a poem for us from the book. Okay. On the way to the 53B District Court of Livingston County, October 1st, 1999. It begins while eating something extremely erotic, like a cake with a picture of two people making out on it. It begins on a Friday night, driving to Lansing with Anne. It begins before that, with the line, He was interested in this turn of events. It begins with $148.77 worth of phone calls to Ypsilanti. It begins at the possibility of sailing the, o- sailing the ocean blue with all its oceany blueness. It begins when you never go sailing off the coast of North Carolina, when your father leaves an empty package, when your father leaves a package on an empty boat in Norfolk, Virginia. It begins when your best friend sends you a letter about walking to Bigfoot to buy NyQuil for his asshole friend Nick, about meeting a woman there who lives across the street, a woman who wants to read tarot for him. It begins when she draws the death card. Typically you hate your name, but for some reason, right at that moment, when he's written, at least I'd have a funny story for Jason, your name seems beautiful to you. It begins with the two of you and Taco Bell on a Tuesday night. No, it begins in a Chinese takeout place that same night. Or maybe it begins on the corner of 3rd and Woodlawn, where you're standing alone, a breeze blowing your hair to the right, the traffic rushing leftward, where Richard has envisioned his own death. It begins with a message on someone's machine at 3 a.m., a message saying, That's it. In the past hour, I found myself naked in someone else's bed and had my driver's license confiscated. It begins when that message is lost. It begins as you stand alone and confused in the setting sun at a payphone in Cougar, Washington. It begins with a story about holidays, a story that really isn't about holidays, but instead how it feels to want so badly to love your family and not be able to, to want to live a normal life, but to know it's impossible. It begins when you read this story, or really afterwards, as you're you're sitting by yourself in tubbies next to the dog wall of fame, watching everyone with somewhere to be go by. It begins on a Monday night as you're waiting for her to call. It begins when she doesn't, or rather the following day, when you're writing something about tubbies and your neighbors just rode out on the lake and the skies turned pinkish and cold, and she calls, and to hear her voice today of all days, and to give, and to talk about gymnastics, which you may or may not like, and the person she's loved ever since she left you for him. 
about you having your license confiscated. To do these things you feel means something, like being handed pamphlets about Jesus. No, no, scratch all that. It begins when a gray cat walks into your house and falls asleep on a green jacket. It begins as you're falling asleep on the coast of Maine, the lights of Portland eight miles away in the distance. It begins on Mount St. Helens when Kirk pees into the lava dome. It begins later that evening as you're t taking the red eye from Seattle to Detroit and you're so thirsty not even all the Pepsi in the world will keep you from drinking the lavatory bath water. Wait, no. It begins the last time you're holding the woman you love outside her door in central Mexico, August 2nd, 1997. It begins earlier than that, in a hotel room in Pátzcuaro on the 4th of July, in bed with her, never wanting to fall asleep, never wanting that moment to end. And back home, someone you don't know yet is falling in love with his Shakespeare professor, and a year later you'll be watching your second cousin shoot off bottle rockets in Plainfield, Indiana, during the longest fireworks display you'll ever see. Your grandmother's there. And now you wonder if you'll ever see her again. It's been since April, and you called her once, but it's not the same as it used to be. It's not like playing bingo in her living room, the only game she ever had, feeling someone's unconditional love, one that today you fear you may never feel again. And the rest of the time you're just trying to find that, and knowing that it may never happen again is unbearable. It begins with an old photo, the colors pale, worn out. It's cold outside. You're wearing a red and blue coat, a hat. Somebody had to take that picture. Somebody had to. It begins with a letter from your best friend in the death card. It begins with a woman saying someone you have just come to know or will, or will come to know very well soon will be a mess on the inside and will keep you from what you're supposed to do. It begins with a phone call to Anne, a long-distance call to Ypsilanti. It begins when you don't feel like you can take it anymore, in someone's living room where you're forced to name your favorite state in the Union, a room which seems to be lit by candles but which isn't. It begins when somebody cuts you in the buffet line at a local restaurant. This tastes like homemade strawberry pie, are you sure it isn't? It begins with someone telling you to take care of your face, a phone being ripped from a wall, a shotgun fired indoors on a Thursday morning the memory of a Nova Scotia sunset last winter. It begins one morning when you receive a phone call and no one speaks on the other end. It begins when you hang up and glance out the window toward the lake. It begins when you see over a dozen swans swimming toward you, and it never ends. Thank you, Jason. I'm so glad you, you started off with that poem. Um, I love that poem. Why did you choose to read it? Um, because I like it, and it opens the book, and I thought it would be good to open the reading. A good opening. What it, it begins. It be Yes. <laughs> is that why you chose, because of that uh, repetition, is that why you chose that poem to be the first poem in, the, the, in Standing in Line for the Beast in the collection? Yeah, that, and it, it contains, it's a good synopsis of the whole book, I feel like. It contains a lot of memories I had at the time that I wrote it. You're pretty much you're you pretty much take the reader everywhere in that poem. 
I wanted to talk to you a little bit about place and whether you um, whether you identify as a, a Midwestern poet because you went to school in Indiana, right? Mm-hmm. And then here in Michigan, mm-hmm. and now you, you live in Chicago, right. as we said, <laughs> just to recap earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> pre-poem. Um, but but then in this poem, literally, you, you go to Mount St. Helens with your friend Kirk. Uh, you're in Mexico. Um, what what do you think about place in in the poem? Um, in this poem, uh, yeah, it's got a lot of places that I that I've been to in it, or or lived. Um, like even ending with the Nova Scotia, like it, yeah, actually I haven't even been there. That was really <laughs> that was just some somebody else told me. Um, that, actually, someone showed me a picture. He was from Halifax, and he just showed me a picture. Um, it's kind of perfect that it comes at the end then, right? Because then, in a way, well, it's kind of a secret thing, not that others the reading it or hearing it would know, but it's like a future thing. Like, maybe you will be going there, like, looking forward. It's like a way of opening the poem outward a little bit more. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that I just take um, everything that I come into contact with and I put it into poems so you know a lot of times it's not something that I've somewhere that I've been or something that I've done necessarily um, in this book most of it is based on experience though it feels like that it feels like a genuine experience in each of the poems thank you and that the, and that the things that you're choosing to put in them even if they're very disparate they do seem they make a certain sense always mm-hmm mm-hmm Okay, well then let's talk, backing up just a little bit, because um, I don't even know, I have no idea how you feel about this, but do you identify as a Midwestern poet? What does that mean to you, um, if anything? <laughs> I think that I don't identify as a Midwestern poet. Um, I, I don't know. I've never actually thought about that. Um, I just feel like... Um, I identify, I try to identify with the entire world, I guess. Um, and definitely when I wrote this book, um, I was much more, um, I felt a lot more Midwestern than I do now. I think living in Chicago, even though it's Midwestern, it, it's, it's pretty international. Um, it's a very diverse city and I feel like I'm not so connected with the Midwest anymore. Because the Midwest to me makes me think of small towns, basically, which is where I grew up and where I lived everywhere until I moved to Chicago. And and was that in Indiana? Where where did you where did you grow up? In Indiana, right in southern Indiana. What's the name of the small town? Um, it's Martinsville. Oh, okay, <laughs> I love your poem about um, Bridgeton, but um, mm-hmm. that's a real town. It is. I went to a covered bridge festival there. Do they have more than one covered bridge, or is no, it just the um, one? <laughs> not that that's not important. No, in the western part of the state, um, they have a covered bridge festival every year, and every town that has a covered bridge... Western part of Indiana? Indiana, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, every town that has a covered bridge has a little festival. It's like all on the same weekend, I think. Are they pretty connected, so you can go to each of the towns along this one route in the west? Uh, um, I think so. It has been, like, probably 10 years since I went to that, so I can't remember very well. well I, I remember we went to about three towns in a day. So 
And did you take pictures by the covered bridges? No. No. <laughs> I wonder what made you think about it. Then when you were, when did you write that poem? Did you write it when you were in Michigan, or is it one that you had the idea before you? I wrote it in Michigan. Man, I don't, I don't remember why I wrote it. That's true. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in there. We haven't even read that one on the air, so. Right. Um, it's just one that stuck out to me because of the bridge and the idea of naming things like let's name this town Bridgeton right rather than big raccoon town or something mm-hmm. I think it goes yeah yeah <laughs> you like animals mm-hmm, I do animal lover Jason Breedle. Um okay well we're gonna go to a little break now you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor my name is T Hetzel you're listening to the Living Writers Show and we're here with Jason Breedle today we'll be back in June, so what? We circled the earth in a hot air balloon, so what? And the rest of our lives is one long honeymoon, well that doesn't mean we're in love. Welcome back. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, today I'm sitting here in the studio uh, with my good pal Jason Breedle, um, a fantastic poet. Um, we kicked off the show with a poem, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the poem. What was Jason? What was the title of that poem that you read to us? It's the first. The first one in Standing in Line for the Beast, Jason's book, um, put out by uh, New Issues, uh, Western Michigan University Press. Um, what's the title? Um, on the way to the 53B District Court of Livingston County, October 1, 1999. It's not anyone who can have a long, awesome title like that, but Jason Breedle, he does it He does it a lot in, in his work. One, it's just one of the many... Um, qualities that stand out um so when jason read the poem just a little while ago um there are also uh, a lot of names pop out of your poem and we were talking about places so place name before like mount st helens Mm -hmm. and in that kirk is there one of your friends is named and then Anne reoccurs a lot in your your poems in this book um so 
consciously did you why why do you think so many of your friends are appearing in your poems um i like to put them in (laughs) (laughs) i have experiences with them and i like to share them i guess is it a way to um give their voices because they're writers too most of them right some of them yeah that's because kirk and ann are Mm mm-hmm Right, so that's yeah. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. That there are. Do they? Do you appear in their work? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> they don't call you up and say, "Hey, man, I just wrote another poem about you." I mean, <laughs> sometimes Kirk. I, I feel like I've read things by him where I might have been there, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm not in the poem. So. So so you're you're sort of in there in spirit. Mm. Like, I might have actually been at the event that he's writing about. I don't know. I'm not sure about that, actually. Okay. Well, we'll have we'll have to ask him. <laughs> okay. Too mm-hmm. bad this isn't a call-in show. We could just dial him up and get right. him on the horn. Right. Um, but um, but then your friend Anne, does she still live in Ypsilanti? Because you mentioned her in that. So that makes it a, a poem from here, sort of. It was. Well, yeah. I mean... Um, she lives in Chicago, actually. Oh. She's a neighbor. <laughs> that's that's really great. Mm-hmm. So was that just you both happened to end up there, uh, or was it sort of yeah, orchestrated? Well, well, she had lived there um, for about 10 years and then moved here to go to school. And we were in the same program. And then she moved back a year before me, I think. And then I came back the year. I went over there a year later. So. And And she's a poet. Too. No, fiction. Or fiction, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask you, what is the, uh, I don't know if you can uh, summarize it for us a little bit, but how would you say the Chicago literary scene is compared to what you know of Ann Arbor's? Because you were here for the book, our book fair, um, so what's it like there? Well, the major difference, I think, is that here, a lot of it revolves around the university. Mm. And, you know, there are a lot of smaller universities in Chicago. So there's not like one central hub of literary activity. It's kind of a lot of more independent things happening, like different bookstores have reading series, things like that. Do have you? Do you make an effort to be part of that, Jason? Um, um, sort of going to the readings a lot or occasionally, reading not a lot. Them? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, you want to I mean, keep I, the mystery. No, I mean I'm friends with some, and I go to some things, but not a lot. I don't think. Um, yeah. I noticed on your, uh, you have a website, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's, what is, what's, what is it? It's Breedlemania, but it's, what is the jasonbreedle.com or what is it? Knifemachine.com. Knifemachine.com. Okay. Um, how'd you come up with Knife Machine? I don't remember. Really? Was it, it's yeah. just something that's been around for a long time? I wanted to title my second manuscript that. But then I ended oh. up I ended up not doing that. I ended what up. what's the or is it a working title or is it no, already locked in? It's pain fantasy. Oh right. Right. <laughs> It'll be out in the summer. And then you'll be coming back to Ann Arbor, right? In October. In October. Um yeah. when you're you'll be kind of going around with the new book and you'll mm-hmm. be reading at Shaman Drum mm-hmm. sometime then. So maybe we'll see you mm-hmm. back then. You can yeah. do a cameo back here on the radio show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about pain fantasy and you actually brought some some poems um from the from that to to read i did yeah should i maybe read one of those now um well well actually can we talk a little more about chicago and then we'll we'll have you read a poem okay um because you your work there um 
because you're a poet, so it, it's I'm presuming that you're not making bags and bags of money off of each poem that goes out into the world right. <laughs> or not yet anyway right mm-hmm. um, then world domination to come by brinomania um but so you work in translation mm-hmm. and so what what's are you what are you translating are you translating other poets you know no i work for an agency we translate for the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> that's hmm. do you ever get any ideas from pharmaceuticals um, maybe. I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, I do know that I, I sometimes, I'm inspired by working with other translators, um, just around the world. You know, we work with translators all over the world, so, and clients too. But, so I have like a lot of, um, you know, daily operations with people who are in, you know, Europe or India, places like that. Do you just do you speak with them over the phone or do they come no, to the most, office? No, it's pretty or, much email. Or do you? Oh, email. Mm-hmm. Sometimes on the phone, but pretty much email. What's What's inspiring about that? Just because contact. Um, well, you know, the, a lot of times it's well a contact with you know people in other places that you don't really know much about. Sometimes they'll tell you a little bit about you know where they live or their families or, um, and it, sometimes it's interesting to see like their grasp of the English language compared to mine. You know, not that, you know, just like if they misuse a word, sometimes it's really, really great the way they've misused it. It's really entertaining. Like, not entertaining, but just really, really great. Because it, it kind of opens another way of coming mm-hmm. at the word, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's like if you have something that you look at all the time, you don't see it in the same way as somebody seeing it for the first time. So the same with words, but we never really, I never take the time to think about that. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that is kind of, that's, so you're always, that's the nature of your job causes you to think about language in these different ways. And yeah. from talking to the people, is there, where would you want to go next in the world if you got a ticket and you could go anywhere? I have no <laughs> idea. I kind of want to go everywhere. So. Where have you been? Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, I haven't been that many places really. Um I lived in Mexico, um, and I've gone back once, and uh, the Dominican Republic, and Trinidad and Tobago, and Canada. That's it. Wow. Um, so, so the islands, and what, what part of Canada did you go to, Van, Vancouver? Um, yeah, I've been to Vancouver, um, Toronto, Ontario, all around Ontario. Uh, that's it. That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder where you'll go next. Maybe um, Alberta. <laughs> Is that where you're going to go next? Literally, yeah, we have Alberta? our tickets. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what will you do there? I'm just being nosy. I don't know. Just sightsee. <laughs> so we'll look for some Alberta poems. There'll be a, a section called "An Ode to Alberta." Probably not. No. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, well, let's see. Um, well, I think. Do you have your poems tend to be quite lengthy? Yeah. Is that what? Can we talk a little bit about your process with the poems? Like, they're sure. always long, right? All the ones I've seen of yours or read of yours. Most are of long. them, yeah. Um, I I went through a phase. Here's one that's short, right here. Ooh, that is okay. I can vouch for this. There's one in couplets that's quite short. Yeah. Um, but most of them are much longer. Um, 
what was the question? Do they always remember? do they always start out long, or is it something where you're always adding into them? Um, oh. No, usually I'm actually taking away. They're actually longer, and really? then I cut stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so you write long, and you always have. Is that is that something that ever? Um, when did you start writing poems? Like when you were a wee lad? No, in college. Um, I. Th- I think that once I found the voice, my voice, that they were long, yeah. Mm-hmm. And before that, it, they were just all over the place, but... When when you say your voice, do you feel... I, this might be even an unanswerable question, I don't know. Um, nothing like putting you on the spot, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, like, when you say your voice, do you feel like it's it's your voice as as a human being or is it something separate your voice as a poet the poet of right now or i think it's more my voice as a human being Mm -hmm. um yeah and how do you um we were talking a little bit uh over email uh last week about the work that's in (laughs) standing in line for the the beast Mm -hmm. and and then your current work that you've been sort of interested in or obsessed with lately Mm -hmm. um does that give you a new perspective on does that feel like an old self the poet that's in standing in line for the beast yeah i mean i think that the the sort of like the the voice in that book its outlook on life is you know um it's 10 years old so it's like I've learned a lot of stuff since then. Um, not that I know anything more, but I've learned a lot more. So um, it's a little bit different. I mean, I can still see similarities. But it, when I read that book, it, it feels like um, reading through a, a diary, sort of, from, from, from like when I was in college and graduate school, basically. And there's lots of, it seems, longing Mm-hmm. within the book yeah yeah i seem to be um really fixed on you know relationships and my childhood things like that yeah and um and you're going to read us a couple of the new poems what would you say are there things that we should look out for or as you read them to us or is it something that they're too new to even have an idea of how to either talk about them or, or or say what their themes are um it is definitely more difficult to talk about them when i'm in the middle like just just me personally um it's more difficult to say to for me to make certain connections that other readers could make um because i'm just in the middle of them um what was the question? <laughs> I forgot. Oh, <laughs> me too, because I'm listening so intently to what you're saying. No, I think it was just if you can see a difference in when we're listening, because you will read a couple of the new ones for oh, us, yeah. right? Um, it, like if there's anything. I think they're uh, a little bit more absurdist. Um, now, the, the poem I read from the book on this show was, was pretty serious, and not all the poems in the book are that serious. Um, or, I mean, they're a little bit more lighthearted, and, like, they have some humor in them. Um, and definitely, like, I'm still working sort of, like, with absurdist humor. Um, that's, a, that's a little bit different now. Is it sort of, um, like, life, life is absurd? Do you feel like that's kind of, is that part of Breedalmania? Um, 
Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll um, we're gonna take a, a short break here, and um, and on on the note of life is absurd. Uh, my name is T Hetzel. It's the Living Writer Show, and we're talking to the living writer Jason Breedle now on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here with Jason Breedle. And uh, uh, Jason, just let me know. We were listening for that short moment there to the Fiery Furnaces. who are They're coming to Ann Arbor in June. But uh, Jason says, ah, it's not one of his favorite bands. So I picked wrongly. Don't let that reflect on Jason Breedle, everybody. Um, so we've got uh, like a few, we've got 15 minutes left in the show, so we want to make sure that Jason reads a couple of um, of poems because he's brought new work with him um, from Pain Fantasy. So Jason, you wanna what do you want to read for us now? Um, I this will is for read the, the early evening commute. Okay, <laughs> I will read um, the early Shirley years. It's actually not from Pain Fantasy. It's newer. <laughs> oh, that's that's perfect. Okay. Um, I could read a poem from that book, though, if you want. No, let's let's go with what you want to read. Okay. It's newer, the better. Okay. Um, this is called The Early Shirley Years. Right when I hung up the phone, I realized how absurd my end of the conversation must have sounded to anyone eavesdropping. So you think he died during sex? Oh, masturbation. That makes sense. And I wondered if my... <laughs> um, I need to start over. <laughs> I'm trying to edit in the middle of this because it's got, it's got language since, in it. Since we're on live radio, we have poem, to make yeah. Sorry. <laughs> some concessions so that we don't get heavy fines. Okay, right, okay. Thanks, I'm going to read you, a different poem. <laughs> <laughs> we can say damn in hell, I think. I'm pretty sure. Right, okay. <laughs> This is called Most Transplanted Eyeball. I think if Robert Frost were living in my building, he probably wouldn't be such a smart aleck about the whole good good fences make good neighbors thing, unless he's the guy who's always asking to borrow $30 and to not tell Tony, and then making racially offensive and homophobic remarks about everyone. If he is that guy, though, then okay, yeah, I see his point. Tonight, I've been wondering... 
like about the first Europeans who saw the capybara fighting their way through a dense jungle, emerging upon a clearing and finding hundreds of capybaras peppering the savanna, and whether they took five, sec five seconds to think, wow, these are weird, or just immediately thought, delicious, let the feasting begin. Personally, I'm torn between wanting to try one curried or in a stew and wanting to snuggle up with one, fall asleep, then the next morning kill him, fry him up and serve him with a nice big emu egg omelet. Good fences make good neighbors. Well, yeah, they do if you're a capybara in Emperor, Emperor Valley and you've been placed right next to the jaguar or you don't want to hear about how Robert Frost's brother may or may not have killed his mom. Someone threw a toilet through my windscreen and I don't feel like talking right now. Is that selfish? I try not to be and I loan him money and I don't tell Tony. In Guyana they have this phrase that's something like, once you eat the agouti in a pepper pot, you'll always return. And then there's a second part about drinking black water, which is apparently creek water turned black by rotting vegetation. I mean, that sounds so potentially dangerous and so possibly bad that I'd be an imbecile not to try it. And people eat a goody, so not, why not eat a capybara? Somebody told me capybaras are dumb, and my good friend told me I'm dumb and also mean, which really, really hurt, and pretty much ever since then, I haven't been able to eat, sleep, or sit still. It's unpleasant, yeah. I would never eat my cat. I would, however, name my cat Peppers if she could be named Pep Peppers without seeming slutty. But my cat would seem slutty if she were named Peppers, even though I still wouldn't eat her. Do people in Guyana ever domesticate the capybara? And then, if they get too hun hungry, do they eat it? I just really like the thought of coming home and cuddling all night on the couch with a cute little capybara is all. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. I see Frost's point here. I mean, yeah, you can wake up in the morning and drink your milk straight from the teat, but no way can you get enough grassland into your apartment to sustain a cow. And the mess when it comes time to slaughter. Same thing with the emu, only to even get the emu egg omelet, you probably have to facilitate two emus making love. Yeah, Frost is right. Better to domesticate the capybara or just get a cat. Name the cat Peppers if you can do so without having the cat seem slutty. Good, fi good fences make good neighbors. Why does Robert Frost hate me? He's too gossipy, for one, and insists that I'm a computer guy and that Anne is an airline flight attendant. To quote Frost, here is now and we are here and there right now, like the capybara. That's right, I'm walling him out in the capybaras and non-slutty cats in. The point is, I know he's the one secretly dismantling the fence each night, and every night, so he doesn't have to be all smart-alecky about it. The only difference between here and Guyana is that here the mosquitoes won't kill you. The only difference between this side of the fence and Frost's side of the fence is that here the emus make love freely, and the capybaras will cuddle with you far into the lonely, lonely night. So how did the capybara first make its appearance into your life? Um, I was just free riding one night, and um, 
I was writing about uh, people eat squirrels, and um, and then I started wondering if people eat, ate capybaras, and I didn't know, and so I just started writing about that. And then every time I would go to write another poem, like in the middle of it, <laughs> I would just start writing about the capybara again, just because it was it was entertaining me. It was really fun to do, basically. That's how. And fun to say too. Capybara. Sure. Yeah, an emu. But but how did you first, because I don't think I'd ever even heard of Capybara before you read poems in Atlanta at mm-hmm. the, the Associated Writers uh, Convention. Um, it is the world's largest rodent. They used to have one, they used to have them in the Detroit Zoo. I don't know if they still do. But, <laughs> in the um, zoo. <laughs> I think what what put it back into my head was in, that there there are a lot of them in the Trinidad in the Trinidad Zoo in Port of Spain and so I think I just had it like had them in my head recently cuz I was just there. So. And what about emu? How did the emus pop up into your writing? Cuz uh, they seem like they they're, they're again, married in a way. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I was um free writing and uh at that moment I couldn't remember if an emu was a, a llama or a bird. And and then, you know, I know it's a bird now, but at that moment, I couldn't remember, so I was just writing about that. Because it sounds potential, potentially llama-like. Right. Emu. Right. And I couldn't, I, and I was going to read the first poem of this series, but then I couldn't because of the language, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> for If listeners are totally confused, that's... That's what happened? That's what happened. I guess, um, well, well, um, I guess another time you could read it and we could just kind of go beep or like make a sound like a semi coming through during the part that you were reading but um so do you want to talk a little bit because uh, we had this crazy idea when we were in atlanta right about going to see james tate like it's, taking a road it's trip. your idea <laughs> it's not our idea <laughs> come on don't leave me here hanging out on a limb <laughs> but wouldn't it be great to take a road trip to see james tate sure yeah and Dara Weir. I don't know her. No, but she's Sorry. she's his partner and also a oh, poet. Oh, okay, I didn't know so, that. So, so we could see them both together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so you don't think we're going to take that road trip? I don't it know. It seems like less likely now. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to talk to Sean about that. Okay, maybe <laughs> Sean Norton, if, if he'll drive. Um, right. Speaking, hope everyone's drive is going well, if you're listening in the car. Um or if you're at your desk or at your home or if you're you're walking your capybara down the street. Um, so so is James Tate, um, is he an influence to you, Jason? Or who are your poetic influences um, or heroes? Like uh, people who write poetry who I like. Um, the poetry, I mean, I like the poetry. I, I do like James Tate um, and Dean Young and Mark Halliday. Um and more recently, I like uh, Lauren Goodman and Ben Lerner's new book. I really liked um, C.D. Wright. I'm a fan of hers. Mm-hmm. What is it? Um, are there, like, if you had to say, do you have a, a poet hero or is that just um, kind of a Mark ridiculous? It's Halliday. Uh, why? Um, why? Because... Uh, he kind of helped me find his voice just reading one of his books. Um, which which book do you remember? Tasker Street. Okay. It was when I was in college, and I, you know, I, I hadn't found my voice yet. I was kind of like experimenting with different things, and 
he was the first person I read who, you know, I read it and I thought, wow, I really want to meet this guy. You know, he just seemed like a really likable person in the book. And his, his poems were funny and very introspective and um, a lot of times sort of heartbreaking all at the same time. And um, I just really took to that. And at that point, I realized that I could, you know, manipulate m- manipulate events that happened to me on the page. I think that before that, I was always just trying to write events exactly how they happened. And a lot of times that's like, there's a lot of really boring details and that you have to like, you know, traipse through. And <laughs> and the truth know, of what happened too, right? Is... Right, right. You know, and I think at that point, you know, I was 21 or 20, I was 21 and I, you know, realized, well, I can do whatever I want really. And it was just really liberating to read him. And then, you know, it sort of opened my, opened the doors to a lot of other people. I think at that point, I began to appreciate a lot of other people. And it's it's interesting how you describe Halliday is is how I would describe your work. I haven't I haven't read too much of Halliday, but the the idea of this 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 humor and and the stories of life, but this in a heartbreaking heartbreaking moments within that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because many of your poems are have really even just within there's like this line where it's completely unexpected, and there'll be a moment of of insight and heartbreak where you just think, oh, that just kills me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're nothing alike, really. Like, I don't think his poems are very much like mine. But just the... Subject matter-wise or anything. But the doorway to to being able to write in your voice was that moment. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well, thank you, Mark Halliday, I guess, because I'm glad you're <laughs> writing the poems you're writing, Jason. And you're, yeah, very... Um, well, let's see. We... We only have a couple minutes left here for the show. Um, is should I read something short? Well, that doesn't look very short. I no, wish but, like, everyone I could, could see one. how long. Yeah, why don't you why don't you read this one and then I've got go. another short one I'd rather read. Oh, okay. Uh, la la la. Okay, la. here we go. <laughs> okay, so uh, here's Jason Breedel. Um, okay. Final poem. All right. Assist your boyfriend with his suffering. Today, Amy will make her final announcement and be put to sleep. In this city, I walk alone through the garment district. I dine with one missing several organs. My fortune, someone you have not seen for a long time, will re-enter your life. You love ponies, but not to excess. As I'm waving to ducks at sunset, the sky becomes plum-colored, the fir trees darken in the wind. The night, as Ashbury would say, is a Molotov cocktail. After she's been put to sleep, Amy has requested that we adorn her corpse with sash and scepter and catapult her into the sky to be carried away by passing ducks who will drop her quietly into the lake. At some point, you began to hate me. I began to bathe in the dark. The distance between Toronto and Los Angeles is 4,081 kilometers. I will forever be somewhere in the middle, under the plummeting sky. My milk is black in a white kitchen, my kitchen red in a white house. Thank you, Jason. 
thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's been great. Um, well, and thanks also to our, our fabulous engineer, Chaz Barrett. And uh, you've been listening uh, to The Living Writers Show, WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Uh, we're going to sign out here with some Kristen Hirsch, who's in town this week. Um, actually, when you're listening, she'll be in town Thursday evening playing at the Ark. Um, Jason Breedle, thanks very much. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Your life will come
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 23rd of May, 2007. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bocado. After pleading the fifth for two months, former top advisor for Alberta Gonzalez, Monica Goodling, testifies before the House Judiciary Committee. As Israel threatens to assassinate Hamas leaders, Fatah and Hamas plan a renewed strategy for an end to the Palestinian internal conflict. And Amnesty International releases its annual report citing the worldwide erosion of human rights. But first, these headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. The Democratic leadership in Congress has capitulated to the White House demand for a war funding bill without a timetable for withdrawal from Iraq. The move comes after President Bush vetoed legislation that would have required a phased pullout to begin on October 1st and congressional approval of progress reports in order to obtain further funding. Some House Democrats say they will vote against the war spending measure in the absence of a timeline. Representatives plan to remove domestic spending measures from the war funding bill in order to hold two separate votes tomorrow. U.S. taxpayers have already spent an estimated $500 billion on the war. Several hundred anti-war protesters rallied outside of the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut this morning as President Bush was speaking to graduates inside the gates. Melinda Tuhus reports. Calls for impeachment of Bush and 